from my house, right here in Louisville, Kentucky. This is Post Poet Pop. I'm your host, Ken L. And today we present episode 22 featuring the poet Isaac Pickell. Isaac's first book, It's Not Over Once You Figure It Out, is now out from Black Ocean. The book begins with an epigraph from one of my favorite poets, Amiri Baraka. And that epigraph goes, To name something is to wait for it in the place you think it will pass. And there's a lot here when it comes to what Isaac's poetry is addressing. Of course, there's the very complicated history of passing when it comes to structural and individual racism in the United States, but also what things pass through an individual experiencing a reality in a world structured to be the way that this one is. What things pass by? What things are allowed? What can pass on a line of both whiteness and blackness? In Isaac's own words, from his poem, What Words Won't Put Me in the Ground, If black were human, it would be already. And then there was also the other part of the Baraka epigraph, the naming part. That is the job of poetry. And it always has been. And for this book, Isaac mentions that the composition process of writing poems, revising poems, reading poems out loud, having them published, and talking about them is also the process of answering some big questions like, Who am I? And why does my life matter? And so much more. So... To name something is to wait for it in the place you think it will pass. It might go to another place, but when you stand there, you also might get an answer. Isaac Pickell is a black and Jewish poet. He was raised in Michigan near the back of his parents' used bookstore. He graduated from Miami University's MFA program, and he's currently a PhD candidate and an adjunct instructor, which we will talk about, in Detroit, where he's working on his dissertation called Passing Over, Passing Through, Transgressive Ambiguity Beyond the Color Line. And you can learn more about Isaac at his website, IsaacPickell.com. That's I-S-A-A-C-P-I-C-K-E-L-L.com. And definitely be sure to get a copy of It's Not Over Once You Figure It Out from Black Ocean as soon as you can. And as soon as I can, I'll get this show on the road. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Post Poet Pop. I deeply appreciate it.
what are any personal origins uh, of your book? And, you know, like, when, when did you start writing it? Were there any direct prompts? Huh, okay. So this book started as a title, <laughs> which is, I think, backwards as all hell. But it started as a title because this was my MFA thesis was titled, It's Not Over Once You Figure It Out. There are, there is one poem from that thesis in this book, and it was a late edition. So the book is not the same, but I started with this title that, that, that felt really central to everything I wanted to say at a certain period back in um, the, I wrote this almost entirely in like 2019 and through the pandemic year. Um, I think is when most of it's written, maybe a little bit in 2021 as well. I had this sort of stuck feeling of getting better and better throughout my years of wisdom, right? Of asking questions, but worse and worse at answering them. So I, I laid out this title where I challenged myself to accept that I don't have the answers to a lot of questions. Um, and from there, I basically just wrote at a couple of like interrelated ideas um, for about a year and just sort of waited to see what came of it. And you know, at first it was just playing replacement pieces uh, with my with my old thesis, saying like, "Here's a new good poem. I'm going to throw this in and take this other one out." But eventually, I recognized that I would have to write a whole new book if I wanted something that was publishable, and so I, I did. I just I just kept trying to not answer questions, and I think that that's. You know, I think I like to think that there is a certain vulnerability in these poems, a certain self-consciousness that that reflects that origin. I think so. I mean, I'm I'm curious when you say questions, do you mean in general, like in a sort of a Socratic way, or do you mean something more specific, like in, in the obvious sentiments of your book? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean... I definitely think I mean as as esoteric as I possibly can mean. So, you know, uh, there were specific questions that I didn't know the answer to, right? I think maybe the, the central one of those is what is my place as someone who passes as white in the sort of spectrum of racial capitalism? Who am I there? Yeah. And, and that might be one of those central questions that I – that I just don't, I still don't think I have an answer to. And I like to listen to other people's answers about that as much as I can. But aside from, from maybe specific questions like that, I think what I got better at and didn't have the answer to was sort of specific to the act of doing poetry, where I could like set out something and, and not feel like I, not feel like I had to come to an end of it. 
Does that make sense? That does make sense. I mean, I don't. Yeah. yeah no, it, it really does. And, and honestly, it's a good segue because this next question that I wrote down, a little bit pretentious, but you know, I just figured, hey, why not ask, do you believe, which I think you kind of just answered, that racism and capitalism are intertwined and intersectional, or do you see them as separate in systemic design in reality? Sure. So I read this, I recently read this book while doing research for my dissertation, my dissertation that may never be finished. We'll see. Uh, the odds makers, the odds makers keep putting the, the stakes longer, but, uh, but I read this book about the invention of whiteness as a colonial project. And basically the argument was we, we think of whiteness and, and racial capitalism as an intersecting thing as almost uniquely American, right? That there's this, uh, there, the American form of chattel slavery, uh, really the, the new world form of chattel slavery. Same thing happens in Brazil and in the Caribbean. But the, the, yep. the, the, the new world form of chattel slavery rewrites and, and creates a script for what whiteness is and therefore what blackness is. And that basically invents what we come to know as like contemporary racism. Um, this book argues that the same project was happening in every colonial space and it just was happening to a less potent degree, right? And that what was happening in um, in mainland Africa, in India, or the South Asia, I guess, in general, was a similar process of the creation of race where one had not been before. Which I guess, to then bring that to the question at hand, I think that race bestowed itself upon capitalism and capitalism bestowed itself upon race. I think that they are like forever intertwined, but I do think that they are separable because I think that they are currently like, uh, how do I put this? Like, like allies of convenience rather than, than mutually constitutive, which is a long way of saying in my belief, if you end capitalism, some people believe, okay, that's going to be the end of racism as well. And I find that to be um, naive. Uh, and by the same token, I think that you can improve systems of, of racial inequality and inequity and retain the, uh, the sort of uh, class-based society that I think we've been in one way or another living with for a couple thousand years. Yeah. You, you, one, you have a precursor, right, of, of a system that was created to be able to absorb other things into it and expunge things out of it in the sense of like Jewish folks or Italian folks or whatever yeah. being absorbed yeah. by whiteness. Constantly whiteness got, got revised. Yeah. I really like that phrase allies of convenience. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think you're, I think you're right that it's, it's almost, it's almost too easy of a question to answer. And so, you know, everyone is probably wrong. It's sort of, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's like, yeah. well, you could answer this any way you want. And ironically, yeah. you're going to be correct and you're going to be incorrect. Mastered economics because you took yourself from squalor. Right. Mastered academics because your grace said you were scholar. Right. Mastered Instagram because you can instigate a Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar.
credit for history repeating itself, protesting changed lanes, intersecting strange fruits, deep-seated with diminishing relevance beyond lines of a curriculum still buried and rooted in compliance and community, all those insider languages peeling off master tongues you bought with his dollar, loaned a better interest than the homeowners you can't call brother, in the wrong neighborhood where stars don't come out, it stays dark, and you won't find cover for your black life. Extra credit assigned to tilt the curve of mother's pride, which held your pale silhouette against the bleached white world that must have settled her ovum, where helixes were warping, grandfather's lips into a truth that reads too horrible or boring to be spoken. How lucky you are to be somebody's prisoner. Stitched into your side where she makes sugar pie and wears black eyes you've been spared from that morning on, when you blended right in with hospital walls, whose biohazard boxes disposed of all important information pertaining to a history you keep claiming, a generation split from Detroit City, where black faces just a birthright but black lies are extra credit for every warm embrace of miscegenation that grows between rows unspoken in family albums, stiff with scar tissue on fingers and palms, pressed against the corners of one-room quarters, muffling screams that paid for the thinnest of noses, 
and that damn good hair the barber disposed of before another young man saw the tawny curls as black life, costing extra when his own mother tells him, stop using the word oppression when you've never known its price and can't fix the costs in creases on her wrist and ankle where the skin is light and taut, but the message is thankless, reminders to the world her patience for fighting is aging. All she can say is don't live a dim life just because you were lucky enough to be born so bright. I, I, I honed in on the anaphoric use of extra throughout this poem, thinking that it, it, it kind of yields this, this prismatic meaning, of course, when it's paired with extra credit, where extra credit is usually an earned kind of good thing. Uh, that someone utilizes to catch up to a previous failure, in this case, a systemic setup. But here, I'm also reading extra as outside the system, or even like the cream or fat that rises to the top. And I think that the theme I'm going for originally, right, the, the, the genesis of the poem, is that um, Black life is seen in America as something that... Uh, is a value added to American society, but completely unnecessary to the American idea of itself. Right? So uh, America considers itself, if it sloughed off blackness, it would still be America, right? It it doesn't, it doesn't imagine that, um, that the American identity uh, requires black life, even though, of course, uh, that couldn't be further from the truth, given the history of our country. And I think from there, I really love the way that you bring up the idea of the the outsider, because I think that that's what that's the natural upshot from where I started, which is if something can be extra, it can be it can be excluded. It's not part of the core curriculum, mm-hmm. right? Man, I feel like you are going, you've already said something that's more uh, pointed than anything I can come up to think of with this poem, which is, you know, so much just the story of how I feel about my life and my mother's life and the ways in which those lives are sort of distanced from each other, in addition to being distanced from the systems of history that have defined America. Is it okay um, to ask what, what is, what, what separates your life and your mother's life or what, or both what ties them together? I, I, what, what separates my life from my mother's life, what kind of alienates us from each other are the lived experience of color, mm-hmm. right? So my, my mom is chocolate brown and I am not. Mm-hmm. And I grew up around a family that didn't look like me. Um, all my uncles and aunts and cousins didn't look like me. I was the oddball. And, uh, you know, when it was just my mother and I, we would, these are experiences that didn't end up in the book, but Mm. for instance, we were driving through, uh, South Georgia, um, en route to visit family in Florida. And it was just my mother and I. My dad had flown down independently, if I remember correctly. We're like, I'm like 12 years old at this point. And we get pulled over outside of Macon, Georgia. 
And, uh, and my mom says, if they ask, if they ask, just tell them I am your nanny. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, that's a, that's a protective measure that is actively needed. But as a 12 year old, it's something that, that creates a distance between my mother and I, that I don't, moments like that aren't just 90 seconds in a life. They, they end up sort of writing a script for how I'm supposed to relate to her. Um, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Did, if, did, if you can remember, did they ask? Yeah. Oh, I remember it was a black cop. Um, so, and we didn't get a ticket. Uh, so it worked out, it worked out in the end. Um, Uh yeah, uh, (laughs) that's, that's not usually the way that narrative goes. No, Uh, but uh, you know, it's, I was, I was starting to get enraged and then that loosened. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, and you know, there are a lot of these false starts that happen in our lives where Hmm. there's this specter of impending racial doom that is lifted by the mere presence of my whiteness or by happenstance. Um, and that's, that's been like a fascinating uh, kind of experience to live through where over and over again, someone starts being racist to my mom and me as like a teenager or a preteen or now an adult, um, can literally protect her with my light skin in a way that I find uh, uh, really like a, a sort of disturbing reverse of the parental role sometimes um, and something that I've right. never really felt comfortable with. All of which is to say that's the distance between us. You know, and I think it actually yields to this other note that I have about the poem. And 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 that's more about the form of the poem. It's in the multiple prose blocks um, but there's this moment where uh, I think one line ends and, you know, yeah. it's it's uh, saw the tawny curls is black. And then there's a line, a big line of negative space. And then you, and then the term life is there. But when you read it aloud, you you kind of subterfuge that that line breaker, that big line of negative space. And I was wondering, like, how you were going to read that. So hearing you read it, you know, it was it was really interesting. But at the same time. Um, curious at that choice because it it's also very symbolic of like this distance that the word black has to travel to the word life. Um, yeah, you can see deep symbolism in that. Yeah, I I definitely think that it's it's written in a way that is is different than it could ever be spoken. There there is heft to that white space um, between black and life. But when I'm reading this poem and 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 you I'm sure noted it. Uh, I, I get up to speed and I can't really slow down. Um, oh, yeah. It's, it's mm. a, yeah, it's a poem that I, I have to read in rhythm or I, uh, I actually had to sort of focus. I put a, a little, um, geez, what's the thing called that goes back and forth and keeps your rhythm? Metro- metronome? metronome? Yeah. Yeah. I had to put up, pull up a metronome on my phone to keep my pace down. Um, because usually when I read this poem in person, I uh, speed through it. And I think that that's a comfort zone where I, I feel more, I mean, this is, I don't feel that comfortable in this poem, which I think is maybe true of, of a decent amount of this collection. Um, but really great question, because, you know, I, 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 I look at that and, and certainly the, the spacing 
tell the spacing that happens on the next lines that follow it, the way the words are spaced out more. There is there is something pausing and staccato. You said you don't feel very comfortable um, in this poem or reading this poem. Why is that? Is that because like it, it, you you wrote them a long time ago, and so you feel like you've personally and aesthetically moved past them? No, I think that to be honest, some of the poems in here sort of wrote my philosophy. Like I figured out what I was thinking through writing these poems. Oh, um, yeah, but I, 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 you know, I still don't feel. I don't think I've moved past where I am in Quadroon. I think that maybe. I would rephrase a couple things if I if I were given my my druthers, but only to clean up the meaning that's already there. Uh, I think what makes me feel uncomfortable in the poem is that it is it is saying as explicitly as I was able at the time, and maybe as explicitly as I still can, that uh, I have the opportunity to um, quote unquote live a dim life that I. Uh, have been have by dint of birth been spared the of my birthright and i feel uh something like generational guilt for that especially because i i I grew up just around my mom's family and not around my dad's at all we were estranged from my dad's family for quite some years and uh because he married my mother and they were racists um so it goes yeah yeah um oh my gosh wow yeah I was just going to say, hey, white families, man, I get it. But yeah, that that's a that's a that's another level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I just think I think the, like literally the direct meaning of this, not not even anything else, just the direct meaning of it still makes me sort of um, twinge uh, when I read it, because I think to myself, like, damn, did I really say this out loud?
You will pay for your osmosis, and it will make you smile. So many true things sound fantastic when transposed to the West, to our present, to the soothing associations we grant the English language, the heroic civility of our frustration, calls to action patiently waiting on generations to monetize them, to our catchphrases masquerading as vernacular, to our t-shirts, all our fucking t-shirts, stiff black text over white cotton or black behind softer white words, the way labor is spelled the same whether it comes before power or camp, if not to our mutiny, at least to our comfort, where there is time to memorize the refrain. Am I making something, or am I reiterating the idea of myself? We chant just below a mutual detection, so that one cannot hear the other's effacements, never meant for answers, but to lay bare better questions. Like, you'll never grow big and strong or tender or mild without learning to appreciate what we can't understand. The object cannot explain the walls built around her, even as they wilt against the grease on our fingers toward an irreparable humanity now too powerful to resist, now recognizable as the same boots they have always been, and when you meet the hologram and give it a name, you lose faith in everything but the buoy of writing ourselves in human. I, I want to talk about, well, you know, osmosis. What's interesting about absorption versus osmosis when it comes to systems of racism, humanity, etc., is it still brings you back to the obvious question that human is both a general scientific thing to be defined, and it's also a social thing to be defined. I mean, the real yeah. question, though, really is like, is human the problem? Like, in the sense of just language or a concept, something to study, right, whatever, is, is it a problem or is it actually a, a utopia? Or is it all there is? Yeah, so I mean, I think that it's it's in vogue to move away from capital T, capital H, the human. Yeah. Um, and not, I think it is obviously in vogue to move away from that as a totalizing concept. And the reason why, being obviously, there are a myriad experiences, and universalizing the human is a is a tricky subject that always centers Western white thought, and yet. I think this collection probably makes decently clear that I I do believe in a certain irreparable humanity. Um something that that is held in common, um something that is productive to think about. Um and maybe that's maybe that's just like reading like trusting Kant too much the first time I read it in my first year of graduate school and never, never shaking that thought. But, but I think that um, more is that 
I don't know why that isn't one of the concepts to reclaim rather than doing away with. Right. Like I remember when right. like, po- post-human first became a thing and I was like, it was like when post-racism first became a thing. And I was like, what the yeah. fuck? What the fuck post are we in here? Like mm-hmm. we're, this shit is still happening. Like that, And I like how you said uh, irreparable. Um, yeah. I, I think that, I think that it's, it's sort of like uh, humanity is doomed and therefore humanity must live forever. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. Uh, I think that's that's sort of how I approach this theoretically. Is that um, it's like maybe it's maybe it's too late to to make the story of humanity a happy one, but the alternative is uh, is darker yet still.
Untitled. I've always been drawn to the aging process of our immobile objects and the stories behind them, like a still locomotive corroding where we left it, like fences growing into trees. I like to think our things are travelers that precede and then follow us, getting lost and found and in between finding deep, dark places no one cares or dares to look. A truth uncovered by its permanence. I wonder, if we become things, what do we find? Maybe our future will be settled in the Rust Belt, as if that could be a place and not a description, as if immobile objects age or die or have stories we did not write ourselves. But this is just a poem where you are allowed to write literally whatever you want to, like how this is not settling anything at all, like how our dreams can do better than doubt, which is not growth, like how self-awareness is no finish line. And so th- this it does not appear in the table of contents, and it's untitled. Um, so I'm curious kind of why that is. This is how it exists. It exists as um, as something that appears after. So the title poem are these, to describe for the reader, these uh, uh, white text on black fields, uh, concrete poetry, sort of asking one grand uh, gesture about what uh, the nature of like human futurity is. So I guess that's the best way to describe it. Yeah. Um, and then, and then there's another blank page, and then this poem arrives as a very like narrowly focused, sort of specific, non-philosophical grounding, which I think is sort of like I wanted there as as uh, as sort of an addendum to the title poem, as opposed to its own thing, like sort of getting let off the ride and uh, being handed the picture of yourself on the roller coaster where all of a sudden this experience becomes concrete. One thing I want to talk about is the I, and this kind of goes to what you're saying, the I in this poem in particular, um, having always been drawn, but the I holding awareness of the I is also no finish line. It operates both as a mechanism that has been done and is not done, like in the dual sense of being, handed something and also having achieved something. And it was this concept that then prompted me to reread Franz Fanon's uh, Black Skin, White Masks this week. And I found this part that I underlined, I mean, years ago, I mean, like literally like 20 years ago. Um, nice. Oh, my body make of me someone who, well, he says a man, but oh, my body make of me someone who always questions, you know, and it's this yeah. quite Socratic thing. But in the context of Fanon and that book in particular, increased need for durability in, in reflecting the lyric. Wow. I, I love your reading of my poetry in general. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, it's I've... the benefit of interviewing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it's wonderful. It, it, you you've you've often left me kind of close to speechless, and and I I, I uh, I'm usually someone who has has too much to say, but I, I I do think that there is part of what I'm reaching for in this poem is the is literal literalizing the objectification of that body, um, and I mean that objectification. 
uh, as 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 literal as possible. What's the question if if we become our own artifacts? If we if we become static, and I think I think the question of of that sort of speaks to, and the reason it it comes after the title poem is it it speaks to the title's demand to not let oneself, as you refer to in, in Fanon, not let oneself kind of stop seeking. Your line itself, the last line, which is not growth, like how self-awareness is no finish line. I'm getting that a lot in media right now. And there was something I saw like yesterday about how, you know, there's just so much because we're, we are becoming so much more self-aware. And I think yes. in that, in that process, that's what brings me back to the I've always been drawn. This was written after a Wendy Trevino poem, um, and it was written the day after the uh, 2020 election, oh, like wow. the morning after. And and so that's you know some of the some of the the literal meaning of this has been sort of lost with time and become irrelevant with time hmm. and. The more I tweaked it, which I did a little bit here and there, and also just the more the poem aged, the metaphor sort of unleashed itself.
On my blue eyes in a hall of mirrors. Every generation confronts the task of choosing its past. Saidia Hartman. Condemned and exalted, tumult and art, horizon and dance floor, arrested and passing, conjured and static, static and static, static and unmagic, static and static and locomotion, static and arrested, static and refusal, refusal and adjacent, and next door, and stacked one on top of the other, no architecture ever kept us closer and dance floor and beams, beams and beams, beams and abundance, beams above and the U-shaped hull, beams and oceans not seen, beams and branches and beams from branches and being and being extinguished upwind and beaten downstream from the extinguished and beams and matchsticks Static and sulfur, measured and traded, brilliance and seduction, and future waiting in the wings. Breathe and concrete, seen and subjection, future and come down, made up and spotlight, detente and searchlight, and static. Static and suspect, scattered and wretched, uplift and betrayal, and coal and diamonds. Brilliant and passing, and salvage, and martyr, martyr and shoulders, martyr as survival and static, coerced and confession, and boundary, and witness, condemned and exalted, to dream and impossible, unbroken and captured, unwritten and unwritten, and static, drowning in horizon and dance floor, as tumult and art and canvas collision. All the combinatory juxtaposing units seemed for me to turn uh, around the only infinitive in the poem, which is to dream. And, and then that alludes to all of these things being caught in definitive time, but the one thing outside time that's unavailable or impossible, dreaming, yeah, um, leaves us with this constellation of being unable to do, to do it. You know, like and beams, line break and matchsticks. Is the availability to burn it down and the inability to do so, which then leaves you only with the dream. All, all thanks to Saidia Hartman, who inspired this pretty directly. I, uh, I think that uh, her, her conception of in in uh, her conception of how life is broken down um, into pieces. Um, that then can belong to the to the holder of those shards is really what 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 drove me here through this piece. I I, I do think that we are we are often left with only our own scraps as material, and I think that that we are not horror for it right that we are 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 rich in in art for having been sort of broken down
yeah, I'm curious what what uh what else are you doing for fun this this weekend? Uh, geez. So I'm, uh, I'm an adjunct professor, uh, at three different institutions, yeah. uh, uh, an art school, a Catholic school and a community college, which sounds like the start of a joke, right? Like a, a priest, a rabbi, <laughs> a priest. And a monk. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Art school, Catholic school and community college. I'm, uh, I'm working on, uh, my, my manuscript that my friend and I, talked about this this morning i'm going to work on finalizing that and then sunday is going to be spent grading because i have 127 students yeah Yeah, i've got 100 127 students which is too many students that's that's a lot man i mean i i think at some point in new york i was commuting to four schools adjuncting at the four schools um one was in jamaica queens one was brooklyn college where i went in flatbush and then also at NYU. And so I was making this giant circle around three boroughs, you know, three hours a day. But I think even then yeah. I only had like, I only had like 190 students, 127 yeah. takes it up to that notch where you, uh, yeah, you, well, you're working on Sunday. And I'm working on, I'm working all, all day Sunday. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Can I ahead. say one more thing? Yeah. I just, I, I think this is really valuable. This is something that I, I, I saw in a tweet by a poet named Marie Buck. She she can she actually started the Baron Watton blog. So she yeah. organized uh, the the NYU well adjunct um, you know kind of organizing stuff, right? Yeah, she's incredible. Marie is incredible. Yeah. She's a force of nature. So she she tweets that there's not an academic jobs crisis. There's an academic jobs compensation crisis. Absolutely. Which is to say, I'm happy with my jobs. I actually love working at these multiple institutions. I, I don't. Well, two would be better than three. But I actually like the diversity of, of yeah. student, uh, the diversity of expectations of the colleges. I think it's exciting. I'm really enjoying my life. I just wish that it didn't come at like a $30,000 a year price tag, right? Where Absolutely. I and, making... you're, and you're piling it. You're like, it's not really, this is the thing too. We never say, we always say, oh, it's, it's 30,000 a year. I think for, I, you know, I think I had tallied like 26 K or something and living in yeah. New York, but it's not, not enough, but it's also not a, a, it's not 30 grand a year. It's 2,800 a piece times yep. four times two because yeah. of because you know when you say that it starts to sound like even a little fancy sounds like well yeah, you yeah, do yeah, you do yeah. get a salary you know and it's yeah. like no it's actually not i'm just doing that for myself to add up my annual pay and yeah. like i remember going to this ps uh, psc cuny union because i was not only a grad grad working professor at brooklyn college but was teaching at other cuny schools and oh, cool. and this was this was 2008 2009 um you know and they were i was so psyched because they were having a meeting about getting health care benefits and this was obviously pre-affordable care act yeah and you know so and that's I've, exciting news it's exciting and i'm sitting in yeah. the meeting and they're like we're gonna advocate for health care and the way that even the union couldn't even get to the point of just saying we want health care or we walk out. Yeah. It's so infuriating. And now to see what PSC CUNY unions have done is is really incredible. And I and and you mentioned Marie and I'm following what what Marie is putting on on social media. I will be forever invested in adjuncts not being a thing 
and that every professor yeah, at exactly. every university just either being associate or something else and they yeah. drop that fucking business model of of seniority based you know employment it's just it's just gotta go it's gotta stop it's but, it's 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 preposterous it's uh it's unsustainable is really what it is at some point you can't keep creating highly educated underpaid people and expect to get away with it is is and i just don't think people know i think people outside of academia just have no sense of how little money adjuncts make i don't think they understand i think it's like it's like one of the only times in my life when a person who had way less privilege than i do um was one of my students in the cuny system yeah. and we were having a one-on-one -on -one and i was like look i'm i'm sorry but i I, I didn't give F's or, or whatever they're called um, unsatisfactories. Yeah, yeah. I, I made it a point not to get in the way of any student, but I let them know in full transparency up front at the beginning of every semester. If I give you a C minus, that is me in code giving you an F. Yeah. And so I gave this dude a C minus, but it's because he missed the final. So we're having this one on one, and I'm like, look, you missed the final. That's an automatic F. The C minus. Yeah, yeah. So it's an automatic C minus, and I'm explaining it yeah. to him. And he's like, man, he's like, yeah, but you, you, you got, you know, you got your, you got your fancy house and your fancy car. And I was like, sorry, what? And yeah, yeah, he's like, oh, on. man, you know, he's like, I see how you dress. I see your bag and, and whatever. And I was like, okay, this is me trying to just pretend to be professional. But if you would like yeah. uh, today's payday, I have my pay stub right here. May I show it to you? Mm -hmm. And I showed him my, my, I think at that time CUNY was paying pretty high and it was 3,500 for a class. Yeah, it's and just not enough. So your paycheck biweekly, of course, is like what like one eighty or something. Something like that. Yeah, it's nothing. So I showed him that and he goes, Is this is this for one day? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> No, man, no. that is bi weekly. And he no. goes, Oh wow. And I was like, Yeah, there are lots of me. And we're all yeah. your professors. So you just showed up on day one and we're like, Oh, well, here's the thing, guys. I'm gonna let you know I'm like, you know, um, vastly underpaid. <laughs> yeah, I, I make I make less money uh, for this class than each of you pays for this class. I think is the way oh that I frame God. it. That is, yeah, that like each student pays more than I make. And do you do you do, are you transparent with your students or are you... I do talk about how much money I make, but I'm not specific. And I think part of that is shame, and part of mm. it is 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 a worry about. Uh, someone saying something to a boss, even in support of me and that getting me in trouble, right? Like a student, a student going up to the chair and saying, it's unacceptable that Isaac makes 33. I, it's, it's, you were teaching back in 2008. The price hasn't gone up. Dream, the impossible dream to fight the unbeatable foe. To bear with unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave dare not go, to right the unrightable wrong, to be better far than you are. To try when your arms are too weary To reach 
the unreachable star This is my quest to follow that star No matter how hopeless, no matter how far To be willing to give when there's no more to give To be willing to die so that honor and justice may live And I know if I'll only be true to this glorious quest That my heart will lie peaceful and calm when I'm laid to my rest And uh, the world will be better for this That one man, scorned and covered with scars Still strove with his last ounce of courage To reach the unreachable star which I'm almost embarrassed to admit my childhood was defined by musicals. Oh. Um, but, but so it goes, I had a father who would sing me, um, sing me musicals and sing together with me all through my childhood. And still in many ways, uh, the musical is, um, well, classic sixties, fifties musicals are sort of my grounding for a lot of things. Um, but I mean, honestly, it sounds, it sounds yeah. kind of, amazing i don't know yeah i mean yeah it's it's a it's a weird world to live in um <laughs> uh, everything is a song first question to get the lightning rods going what is your favorite sandwich to make for yourself who um my favorite sandwich to make for myself this is kind of spoiled of me so my within my family unit we are two vegetarians and a meat eater my stepson is has never met a vegetable that he liked, but my wife and I have very, very different tastes. So there are three different meals that are cooked every single night, um, and uh, Molly will often make salmon. It's like one of her things. It's one of her rare proteins, right? She's a pescatarian. Mm -hmm. So um, so my special treat to myself every so often when it's allowed is I will get the tail of the salmon the very end, the thin part at the end, put that on uh, multi-grain bread with some uh, chimichurri sauce, which is like kind of a spicy herb sauce, and some lettuce and some tomatoes with the hot salmon in the middle, and it's toasted bread. It's absolutely terrific. It's a special treat I only get so often. Damn, so I man. think that's, yeah, that's that sounds... probably number one. That sounds lights out. I mean, I, I, my, my partner, she also is a salmon cooking fanatic. So I gotta, tr I'm gonna try your sandwich. Yeah, yeah you exactly. gotta try it because that tail doesn't taste that good on its own because right. it's like the thin part at the end, right? Yeah, it doesn't yeah. have that fluffy texture. But yeah. in a sandwich, it's perfect. Are you keeping the skin on? Oh yeah, but right. that's a 
That's a I, uh, old wives' tale about some health benefit that is unclear to me. Right? Though. Yeah, like vitamin I, E. Gotcha. All right. Well, that's a great sandwich. Second question: Wine, beer, a type of liquor, or something else? Wine, beer. Okay, so I I have different tastes for different occasions. Um, so if I am out somewhere, it's almost always a beer. Uh, outside of yeah. the house, it's almost always a beer. Um, something, you know, obnoxiously small brewed at some brewery I hadn't heard of until I showed up at the restaurant and am now an expert immediately, uh, on everything about the beer. Um, but I don't go out that often anymore. I'm in my mid thirties now. And I find that going out is something that I do until like 1130 PM, maybe once every couple of weeks to really feel young again. Um, but most of the time I'm around home and in that situation, Drinking a beer is is like a slow process that is going to get warm half the time. So I I switch to wine at home where I'm mm. pretty exclusively like red wine, um, one cup of red wine and sipping on that over the course of a couple of hours. And then if I am uh, uh, anxious or preparing for something or the ADHD meds are just not kicking that day. Uh, I turn to whiskey. So whiskey is is purely uh, a maladaptive home remedy. Uh, Makes sense. Now, that, yeah. yeah. That when being say, said, it's the most common. Okay. And when you say whiskey, sorry, just as a Kentucky person, uh, you know, do you mean bourbon? Do you mean uh, scotch? Uh, Irish right, whiskey. Thank you. Yeah. Definitely, definitely bourbon. Yeah. Try okay. I'm 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 committed to bourbon. Well, th- this place definitely is. And then going back to the to the beer, is that just any kind? My my world is sours. So sour beers. Very nice. Yeah, that that's that, where I yeah. sort of live. The next question uh, is one of the is the personal one um of of the five and and I read that sure. you were you were raised raised loose term somewhat in a used bookstore. So yes. I am curious to know what your favorite used bookstore that you have been to that's not that one. My my poor father's heart would break if I uh if I mentioned any bookstore but his which closed down in in 2017 after a yeah, a 28 so. year 28 year run. I I think of all, I've been to a couple of like the you know famous used bookstores around the country. I've I've been to a couple in Seattle, which is really like a hot spot for them. Yeah. But I think my my favorite that I've ever been to was was partly because of the situation I was in um, that that gave it uh, sort of uh, you know rose tinted glasses for me. But it was a bookstore. I can't remember the name. I bet I can find it online. In Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the Midtown Scholar Bookstore, which oh. is right downtown in Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's like three stories, which you probably don't expect out of Harrisburg. And I got lost in there for oh, like six or seven hours when dealing with a breakup. Uh, I, oh. I had a breakup, and I drove myself to Philadelphia just because I needed to get away from Detroit. And stopped in Harrisburg and and lost an entire afternoon to this bookstore, and uh, I think that was a that was a pretty that was a pretty unique experience that has left um, Midtown Scholar Harrisburg as having a special spot in my heart. 
hey, you know, Harrisburg needs more love. So, but although I, I did read also that your your father's bookstore closed, and I, I it did not say what the rationale was, but I hope it was a mildly decent uh, closing. I'm sorry to hear that, that happened. I'm sure that was maybe difficult for him. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll say it briefly just because he'll probably listen to this. Hi, Dad. Loves to support <laughs> my work. It's one of the one of the kind of ultimate regrets of my life is that I wasn't in a position in my life to take it over. Sure. So I had I was at uh, my my MFA program down in Ohio, and my father had um, knee surgery and hip surgery within like a six month span. He's in his his mid seventies now, mm. and he was looking at the bookstore, and it's always been basically a sole proprietorship with some people helping out on the sides. And he was looking at a four month recovery or whatever, and he was like, well, I just can't, I, I literally can't run the bookstore anymore. Like I would just have to close for four months um, or limp around this terribly crowded, cluttered place and risk further injury. So he asked me one day, like, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about closing the bookstore. What do you think? And I was like, no, like, absolutely not. Like you can't do that. It's, it's my, it's where I, I host all of my nostalgia. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, besides it just being like a really wonderful Ann Arbor, Michigan institution. Um, but he was like, well, you can take it over if you want to. And I had to say like, no, I'm in the middle of this MFA program. I'm starting my PhD next year. Like I can't, I can't do it right now, you know, maybe in five years and there was mm -hmm. no way he could hold on. So he sold off the stock and broke his lease. And now it's a, now it's a running store because Ann Arbor ah. needs a running store. Yeah, it's tough. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. And uh, we will say that the Harrisburg bookstore is only second place. And, and since you shared that, I can share this with you. I, um, I was once on house arrest and it, this was from okay. being a protester and I nice. live. I lived in this neighborhood in Louisville, where you know there there are quite a bit of galleries, bookshops, restaurants, bars, all that kind of thing. And and within the range of my house arrest uh, uh, anklet um, was this used bookstore. Oh, that's amazing! It was called <laughs> it was called Twice Told Books, and it was okay. run by a person called Harold. And Harold is is slightly infamous in certain circles in Louisville. Um, because he, you know, is kind of an ex-communist. So when I yeah. came in and I told him, hey, I'm testing the range of my anklet, he was just like, well, show it to me. And I lifted my pant leg and he was like, oh, holy shit. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, you're not supposed to leave your house. I'm like, but I looked it up and, you know, and I walked over here and it's 200 feet away. So yep. this will be where I annoy you for the next 90 days. And he was like, he's like, I welcome it. And honestly, some of the stuff he put me onto changed my life. And, you know, I, I humbly respect the, that's work, amazing. That, the work that your father did. Uh, that's for sure. So, so thanks for sharing. Wow, what that. a story. Yeah. And, thank you. All right. So uh, speaking of books, what three uh, are you currently reading or have recently read? Um, okay. I, I just finished uh palm lined with potions by uh Basie Allen, which was a truly incredible read. Um something I would suggest to anyone. It sort of rewired the way that I think about how simple language can be used in incredible ways. Right? We often think of of poetry as being like uh 
uh, virtuous virtuosity, right? Mm -hmm. Like incredible use of language. And this was incredibly simple in a lot of ways or plain spoken and yet was magical. Really enjoyed that read. I, it, it's a definitely a pretty political book with a lot of, you know, politics of the post-George Floyd world, the sort of bare dividing lines that survived after the summer of 2020. And uh, I really found it to be um, kind of a wonderful read. Then the, the other two are, are, well, yeah, Personal Problem, singular, uh, by Brendan Joyce. He's a Twitter poet which I appreciate because I post a lot of poems on Twitter myself. Mm. Um, and he is an avowed out-and-out -out, uh, politico. Uh, really, his whole mission is, um, it seems to be giving a human touch to uh, um, revolutionary uh, language. Nice. Um, and it's, and it's, it's done in this really vulnerable way. Um, this one I'm about halfway through right now. I've been sort of leafing through it, and I'm actually familiar with a lot of the poems already from uh, from Twitter. But the, the vulnerability that he that he accesses in these conversations that are sort of explicitly political is really impressive. And you you sort of it's it's sort of a politics that is that is laid out by way of the realities of a life. So like a single life implies a certain politics and and he's able to do that really effectively let's see uh something else i just read was by uh an old friend of mine actually uh we went to undergrad together uh back in the early 2010s it was my second attempt at undergraduate education i dropped out of college back in 2007 uh took six years off before i returned during which time I did nothing interesting. Though I was a manager at Forever 21. That was that was exciting. Oh, wow. Um, mm, very different lifetime. Um, so it's Jason B. Crawford, his book, Year of the Unicorn oh, yeah. Kids. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and so, yeah, we are. We were friends when we were in creative writing classes together. We graduated the same year from Eastern Michigan University and a very small creative writing program of like eight people. And we, uh, I don't think either of us would have really expected either of us to do what we've been doing in recent years. Um, Jason was just published in freaking Poetry Magazine, for, for goodness sake. Yeah, I sake. saw that. Yeah. Yeah, and a great poem, too. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I read uh, a couple weeks ago now, I guess. I read Year of the Unicorn Kids. Um, and just a really striking portrait of desire in a way that is um, sensuous, but not vulgar. Uh, it's not afraid of sexuality, but it, it's not like, uh, it's not like a O'Keefe joke, right? It's not just, gotcha. oh, that's the wrong body part because he's a gay man. It's not just like a series of, of like explicit images, and yet it still has this sensuality to it uh, that's really wonderful to read through. All right, so last of the five, this is the tough one. Uh, or at least that's what I hear from other people. You get one album to listen to for the rest of your life. What are you going to listen to? Oh, hell. Wow. Wow, that is, that is an incredibly challenging question. And, and the, the question is, do you go for old classics that you've loved for a long time or something that, that feels like it's 
your current love of your life. And I, I think, I think you probably have to choose something that you've loved for a long time because it's sort of dangerous to choose some, uh, like something that could end up being a flavor of the week and then something you would like, you know, deeply, deeply regret after year 15 on the, on the island uh, when you've heard every track 25,000 times. So I think what I go with, even though it's a little lo-fi, it's not my favorite of their albums, but it is the one that is most meaningful to me. And thus I think would be the one that would have the best, the best repeatability is uh, Tiger Milk by Belle and Sebastian. I was surprised. I was happy for a day in 1975 I was puzzled by a dream that stayed with me all day in 1995 My brother had confessed he was gay It took the heat off me for a while he stood up with a sailor friend Made it known upon my sister's wedding day Got married in a rush To save a kid from being deported Now she's in love Saw the funny side, we introduced my 